Good morning, church. All righty. So what is it that drives your need for something in life? When it comes to essentials for living, we know that air, food, water, and shelter are critically essential. Without these, there's no hope for survival. Now, if we move down the priority ladder when it comes to essentials, and and let me back up and just say this. We know that there's a difference between essentials and desires, do we not? I'll briefly allude to that in this message in this introduction, but if we move down the priority ladder when it comes to essentials, and in some respects, culture has something to do with that, but maybe for some of us, it's a job. It's essential that we can produce income and provide for our families. Maybe it's a vehicle that is essential within the day and age that we live in. Maybe for some of us, it's clothing in general, at least in this American culture, that's important to have. That said, at the end of the day, we know that there are certain things that are essential for life. What about simple desires? Not just things that are essential for us, but just desires. Once again, I think culture has a role to play in examining this. Desires, some will be more important than others. I would say that a spouse is a good desire, and let me say I'm a winner in that one. Amen. Having nothing to do with me, let me add that. What about a certain... (laughs) I just looked up and saw her. Sorry. What about a certain level of job? Maybe to expand your influence or your reach in some capacity. That would be a desire on some level. For some of you young folks in the room, maybe you're more concerned about a certain style of clothing. That would be a desire, not necessarily clothing in general. Be that as it may, whether it's foundational or secondary, life is full of stuff that we either need or want. What's more, depending on the level of significance that we place on those essential components or those desires, determines how much we apply ourselves to pursuing them. Having said that, when it comes to our greatest need in life, even if you have the absolute essentials of air, water, shelter, and food, and maybe, by the way, you even have a life that's brimming with desires fulfilled on top of those essentials, even if you have that, a life Without Christ, like the Titanic, 
is headed towards an iceberg of judgment. An iceberg that will have nothing to do with the strongest of ships. You will not be able to withstand it. What's more, without Christ facing that iceberg of judgment, you will drown in a sea of eternal torment. Oh, but. There's a lifeboat of rescue, is there not? A lifeboat of rescue. You know, even in these introductory comments, can I just stop and say, this is what we need more than anything. And I say even now, if there is someone in this room, you don't have to save this for the conclusion, but even in an introduction, if there is anyone in this room here today, nothing else matters with whatever I'll say. Nothing else matters with whatever this day brings. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ today is the day of salvation. Come, lay your sins at the foot of the cross and receive the forgiveness that only comes through the blood of Christ. This is the greatest and most essential need for mankind. Close the Bible. Amen. That's all we need, huh? But there's more. I want to just go off on an evangelistic sermon now. Preach it. With that said, for my believing friends, let me remind you of your greatest need. I've mentioned it several times throughout the previous weeks, but it all comes back to a greater dependence and a greater need for Christ. How do we come to terms with that? Bigger view of God and a lower view of man is a great place to start. We've stated that several times now here previously. Last week, in the beginning section of the Lord's Prayer, we saw on full display in the beginning section that our Lord's model for prayer is first and foremost about the glory of God. This is critical for us to remember. Jesus teaches us a big God theology when it comes to prayer, when it comes to how we approach him. Our Father is in the heavens, is he not? We desire his name to be treated as holy. His kingdom will, become, will come. His will will be done. It's about the glory of God. Notice even in those descriptions, His, 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 His. Let us not forget that as we approach even the second aspect of this prayer here today. Because Jesus didn't stop there, did He? He knew, He knows that we have more necessities of life that need to be answered demands on our lives that once again, by God's grace, lead us to 
a greater understanding and dependence and need for Christ. Even in our desires, even in our needs, many of them, which we'll see, are not just desires in this prayer, but essential for us in our Christian living. Let me repeat again that overall theme of this prayer. I think it's very helpful for us not to forget and get lost in the weeds, the big picture. And expositional preaching is a fundamental tenet of what we do here at Miriam Christian Chapel. But there is a danger sometimes in breaking down units into smaller pieces. And that's it. You forget the big picture. So I want to remind you again, what is the major theme and thrust of the Lord's Prayer? It's that prayer is first about the glory of God and second provision. Last week, as you remember, we looked at the glory of God. Today, we'll examine provision by answering the question, how can we pray for the Lord's provision? So, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 if you're not already there. The title of today's message is The Lord's Prayer, Part 2. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is the authoritative Word of God. God speaking directly to us through his inspired and infallible word. Matthew chapter 6 verses 11 through 13 reads. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us. From evil. Amen. You may be seated. Now our first model that we see in this second half of the Lord's Prayer for provision is number one, we pray for his support. We pray for his support. We'll see this in verse 11. Now right away, and I mentioned this even last week, as many of us have been exposed to the Lord's Prayer Throughout much of our life, many of you have memorized it, can repeat it. On the surface, it seems very simple. That said, it's so significant. Even in these words, give us this day our daily bread. What is Jesus communicating here? Once again, don't forget what we mentioned last week. Two components I want us to see. I I will answer, what's he communicating? But two key things, don't forget from last week, is number one, this is, as an overall perspective, a collective focus in the prayer. A church focus. This will be key. And along the way, you'll hear me even today mention several personal applications. And that's more than suitable for this prayer. But I don't want us to lose sight of that collective emphasis throughout. Not to mention, as we work through the provision aspect and portion, don't forget the prayer as a whole. 
that glory of God focus is critical for us. As we look at the model, if we pray and our prayers are primarily and most of the time focused on, Lord, give me, Lord, give us, something's all out of sorts here. We've missed the game plan, so to speak, to go back to my illustration from last week. Fundamentally, at its core, we desire the Lord to be glorified. His name to be vindicated, his kingdom to come, and his will to be done. That's at the core. Those two components. Don't forget as we dive more into provision here today. We need daily support, do we not? It's not just a simple desire, it is essential. Notice these words. That are easily passed over. Give us this day our daily bread. This day, our daily bread. This is about one day at a time. And really, in all reality, this is not surprising giving first century context. First century workers which we're not used to in this day and age, would work <clears throat> in a capacity where they would earn their wages daily. In the correlating account of the Gospel of Luke and the Lord's Prayer, Luke says each day. Why is this important? If we put ourselves in the original audience's shoes, which is, what we should all desire when we interpret the text of Scripture. What did the original author mean to the original audience? When we put ourselves in their shoes, we start to become more aware of this daily need for support. If I leapfrog into the 21st century, this is not about a prayer to fund your future retirement fund. All the while acknowledging that's not an inappropriate prayer. Amen? This is a prayer of modesty. This is a prayer of one day at a time. I need your support. I need you in regards to daily circumstances. Later on in this same chapter, Verse 34, I love this verse. Jesus will go on to say, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> so, and don't hear what the scripture is not saying. Do we not plan for the future? Do we not plan for a rainy day? Of course not. We do. I love the book of Proverbs. We see that all throughout in these principles of, of planning and preparing for the future. Nonetheless, in our haste to plan for the future, and why do we do that? 
I, I think it really boils down to an acknowledgement, an understanding that we, we don't know what the future holds. Those are big implications out there on the horizon. Oh, Lord, help me. But yet, why do we at times on a daily basis, some more than others, especially you planners, Franklin planners still out there? I don't know. I remember those back in the day. You've got everything nailed down. You've got it all under control. Everything is covered in your mind from a daily perspective. You've been there? I have. Right up until you get that call that you never expected. Right up until you get that text that puts a pit in your stomach. Right up until that perfectly planned day goes haywire because of circumstances completely out of your control. Right up until that sin that you thought you had conquered comes creeping back in. Why do we struggle with this at times? I'll tell you why. And we're all guilty of us if we're honest. We think we've got it together at least on a daily perspective, some of us more than others. You know what? We don't have it together. Do you hear me quote 1 Corinthians 15.10 on a regular basis? Hide that word in your heart in order that you might not sin against the Lord. The Apostle Paul worked harder than anybody. He was a planner. He disciplined his body to plan for Christ. Yet... What did he say in 1 Corinthians 15, 10? Yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he desperately needed grace. He desperately needed daily support. With this prayer of support, we clearly see that food is an aspect in this word bread. Going back to our initial introduction, food is an essential component of survival. That said, is Christ communicating something more here? Is he only praying for us to petition the Lord for the support in regards to the food that we will eat today? I don't think so. There's something more here. There's the idea that God cares deeply for all your physical needs. The daily support for living. Moreover, let's not forget the emphasis of this prayer as a whole. The church's prayer for daily support and need and dependency. And we saw this in the end of Ephesians chapter 1. When Paul prayed that the church would grow in power and in knowledge, that the church would become sanctified, oh, beloved, is that your prayer? That this church 
would hunger and thirst our church for God. In the same way that we hunger for bread daily. Whether the church collectively or as individuals. Can we pray words such as Job 23, 12. When he said, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than necessary food. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than necessary food. What is it that sustains you today? Is it you and the strength and the might and the planning of you and yourself or me? I love Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his steps. By all means we do it. But what does that proverb continue to say? The Lord establishes them. It's this type of dependence for him that will inevitably empower your prayer life along with prioritize your prayer life. What's more, it's a prayer life like this that fuels a higher view of God and humbles you concerning a lower view of man. Now, unfortunately, this side of glorification, we still have to deal with that nasty little thing called sin. Even though You've been redeemed, those of you that are in Christ, by the blood of the Lamb from sin. Even though you have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Even though you are no longer enslaved to sin, we still wrestle with sin. We need forgiveness. And that's The second prayer that we see here, we pray for his forgiveness. We pray for his forgiveness. Look again at verse 12. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Once again, this seems simple on the surface But oh, I want to impact the significance for you. And I want to impact it from a historical perspective. Imagine being a soldier on the wrong side of history. A soldier on the wrong side of history that would change the course of a country. A soldier who becomes captured and labeled as a traitor. Treason requires the death penalty. And yet, in a circumstance such as this, 
you are pardoned and freed against all odds. Christmas Day, 1868. History tells us this is exactly what happened when President Andrew Johnson pardoned Confederate soldiers. When asked, why would you do such a thing, President Johnson? He said that this day requires a great act and gesture of reconciliation. When we pray, forgive us our debts on an immensely grander scale, we catch a glimpse of what this means in light of this illustration. If the accusation of treason in times of war is one level of moral and legal debt, so to speak, what level is yours and mine sin against a holy and righteous God? You and I, before the grace of God, were as treasonous and as treacherous as they come. Romans chapter 3, you know the passage, verses 10 through 12 illustrate this. When the Apostle Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And yet, God, but God, who is rich in mercy, freely bestowed forgiveness and pardon to you, believer in Jesus Christ. Oh, but does that battle stop after salvation? You know the answer to that. Sure doesn't. And once again, the Apostle Paul communicates this. As a believer... From Romans chapter 7, when he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully confer, concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So then, when we pray in this way, beloved, forgive us our debts, we are reminded of the enormous debt that was paid on your behalf for the salvation of the church by the blood of the Lamb of God. You are reminded, we are reminded of the enormous daily need, even as a believer, for forgiveness. 
You know the passage. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. As the Apostle John says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all unrighteousness, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Even though there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, we still acknowledge and realize our desperate need for daily forgiveness and support for the church as well as the individual. Now, as for this verse as a whole, I want you to notice the order of what's being communicated here. Let me read the entire verse again. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you see this? I love this. I love this. Focused on the order of this verse. It's not about self. It's not about who has wronged you. Is there anyone here today who even feels as though they've been sinned against? Be careful, beloved. If we become too overly me-focused in prayer, we will slowly lose sight of our need to hate our own sin. To despise our own sin. Puritans would often say a holy hatred, a holy sweat to be purged of the sin that afflicts me. I'm telling you, when you have this perspective, your responsibility, yours and my responsibility to forgive others will be the natural, spirit-filled, consistent response because of a perspective that understands, oh Lord, forgive us our debts as a church. Forgive me, Lord, and how I've sinned against you. That word grudges won't even be a part of your vocabulary. Whether in your heart or in your words. As we understand, we need to pray for his forgiveness collectively as well as individually. Going back to the introduction for anyone that is in this room here today for the salvation of your soul. Today is the day of salvation for you. For us dear saints, daily in need of his support and his forgiveness. Now, before we round the corner towards the final prayer, I want you to make note of this last word of this verse. 
debtors. Debtors. Why is this important to note? Because it's about the person, not just the sin. It's more than the surface. It's at the root. It's at the core. Are we committed to forgiving the person as a whole who has wronged us? The church collectively or even individually? President Johnson, those prisoners as, a pers- as persons were completely pardoned. It begs the question, does this mean we just turn a blind eye to sin? Does this mean that we sit back and allow people to take advantage of us or walk over us? Of course not. We're wise as serpents, gentle as doves. Yet, what this is, is it's a release of a heartfelt animosity and rejection toward those who have sinned against you or against this church. Matter of fact, there's no option there, is there not? For born-again believers. Look at verse 15 of this same chapter. These solemn, profound words When Jesus says, but if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. So. What does this look like? How do you respond? Well, much to the confusion of some within the church certainly is never devoid of truth. Paul will say this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. We speak truth in love. But yet in that same chapter of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul will go on to give a wonderful example of how we can respond in light of our need to pray for forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 reads, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Here's the key. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Beloved, when we come to terms with the incomparable reality of what Christ has done for you, how can we not forgive our debtors, the persons who've wronged us? As a church or as individuals? This is our prayer for the church and forgiveness. Having said that, Life is a yellow brick road surrounded by lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. For Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, that concern was somewhat unfounded. 
For us, though, we're walking in a world that's surrounded by lions and tigers and bears and one lion who is seeking to devour all who would come in his path. And because of that, we need protection. And that's our third model that we see here. We pray for his protection. Look again at verse 13. He says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right away. It's critical to address what this verse is not saying. Somewhat sounds like it. Do not lead us into temptation. Is this saying that Jesus is the author of temptation and sin? May it never be. Scripture does not contradict Scripture. And James chapter 1 verse 13 clearly reads, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So then, this produces two logical questions. First, where does the temptation come from, Pastor John? Sure sounds like that on the surface, but as Orthodox believers, we understand that can't be the case. Well, there's multiple places we could turn in Scripture, but I'll go to what we've already examined here in our exposition of Ephesians in chapter 2. Perhaps we see the best explanation of this threefold answer to where temptation comes from. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. You'll remember it in our message concerning the doctrine of radical depravity. Paul says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, first component, according to the prince of the power of the air, second component, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, third component. So my friends, whether as an unbeliever, which is clearly what Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is discussing, or even as a believer, temptation comes from the world, Satan, his spiritual forces of wickedness, and our own flesh. Christ is not the author of sin or temptation. That said, there's still a second question that arises, and that is simply, what does this mean? What does this mean when we pray in this way? Lead us not into temptation. It comes back once again to this understanding and awareness of the need of the moment, the dangers that surround us, the lions, the tigers, and the bears so to speak. For the Christian, 
He's not naive to the wolves that are lurking. He's not naive to the great lion who desires to devour him. He's not naive to the spiritual forces of wickedness that pursue him. He's not naive to the lust of his flesh that would lead him astray. Lead us not into temptation, Lord. Moreover, as we've seen throughout this prayer, the church, the church cannot be naive to imposters that would fleece the flock. The church cannot be naive to the spiritual forces of wickedness that are waging war against the bride of Christ. The church cannot be naive to the influence of sinful flesh within its own doors. Having said that, this prayer of protection is all about a cry for protection, an awareness of our consistent daily and desperate need to be protected. There's a sense in which temptation and sin is always lurking for the church as well as us individually. Yet this prayer teaches us to rest in the confidence that God will enable us to overcome, to be more than conquerors, Amen? Or more importantly, it teaches us, deliver us from evil. So he begins with an essential need for daily support. And then he continues on with the necessity of forgiveness on a regular basis. And then he concludes with our desperate need for protection. In our introduction, I mentioned that iceberg of judgment. As believers, thankfully, by the grace of God, we no longer fear that ultimate demise, and ships throughout the world that are sinking into an eternal torment. Yet, as believers, we're still surrounded by choppy waters. There are sharks circling your lifeboat of rescue. And there are ominous storms on the horizon. And for some of you, maybe the seasickness is too much to bear. For some of you, the sharks are testing your boat. 
For others, you cannot see the sun that's behind the clouds. Beloved, this is when we pray. Deliver us from evil. This is when we trust in the words of the inspired writer of Scripture, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4.18 for our daily and final rescue when he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's our need. That's our strength. That's our comfort. Friends, these last two weeks, this is the model of our Lord's prayer. A prayer that's first about the glory of God and second, our primary provisions for life. And I encourage you, dear saints, you can overcome. You will persevere. You will succeed. Because our God who's in the heavens reigns. And he has purposed through his son, that you would be redeemed and rescued and that his name would be glorified and that his will for this church and for you, beloved, will come to pass and it will be for his glory and our good. Do you believe it? It's all we have. Pray with me. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for these sweet, sweet and precious words that comfort us, that encourage us, that bolster our confidence to know that you are in control. To know, Lord, that in our desperate need for daily support, that you provide it in our utter necessity to be forgiven, that you grant it. And for our critical, essential need to be protected, you will do so. Nothing will stop your hand. Nothing will thwart the will of God not even all the spiritual forces of wickedness arrayed in all of their power can stand against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray.